Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, and welcome to a Super Bloom podcast. Welcome. I am Candace King. Today I'm sitting down with Tracy Clark Flory. Tracy is a journalist and author of the memoir, Want Me A Sex Writer's Journey into the Heart of Desire, which New York Times bestselling author Rebecca Traster calls intimate, challenging, and so very smart. And I call a fantastic memoir that everyone should read. And I don't know why I say memoir so strangely. I feel like, you know when you say a word and it just doesn't sound right in your mouth? Memoir, memoir. A while back, I had interviewed Caroline Spiegel, who is the founder and CEO of Quinn, which is an audio porn app that's specifically geared towards women. And and so after that, it just really got me so curious on specifically like how women not only approach you know their sexuality with partners but also how they approach it with themselves and I had been kind of promoted this book want me a sex writer's journey into the heart of desire by Tracy and I started reading it and it just was such a beautiful wonderful you know storytelling of Tracy's relationship with sex and how she was taught about sex at a young age, how her perspective on sex evolved as she grew into adulthood, and specifically how she was writing about sex as a journalist and how that was so very different in which and how she was experiencing sex as a single young woman in her 20s. And so I highly recommend her book. Get it anywhere. It is such a beautiful read. And what I love about Tracy's memoir is it's not just singularly about sex and sexuality. It's also really a coming of age story. You know, Tracy is incredibly vulnerable about her relationship with her parents, specifically her mom as well, who, you know, Tracy lost 
and she will we'll talk a little bit about that today in this episode. But Tracy has written for Cosmopolitan, Elle, Esquire, Marie Claire, Salon, The Guardian, Women's Health, and so many others, specifically about feminism, gender, motherhood, pop culture, sex, technology, and many more things. If you have read Tracy's book and you're excited to listen to today's episode and you have yet to sign up for her Substack, highly recommend that. If you go to tracyclarkflory.substack.com, that's where you can find Tracy's newsletter on sex, pop culture, and feminism. She's just a fantastic writer and storyteller, and you're going to get such a sense of that today by the end of our interview. So without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Tracy Clark Flory. He's going to turn six in August. He just graduated from kindergarten. So, Oh, my goodness. And how many do you have? I have two. Two. Yeah, I have two that I gave birth to. I have two. I have a seven-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old. And they have older sisters, too, who are 20 and 17. So I've been blessed to just be surrounded by growing young women for the full spectrum, many, the full oh spectrum. <laughs> I know my joke for so long has been like I want to start a tampon company or like some sort of <laughs> feminine products company to get a kickback at this point right because <laughs> I would like leave Target and they'd be like what I'm just don't ask just don't ask <laughs> like, <laughs> that's so funny that is amazing I can picture oh, it man. Yes. yes but it is so it it is especially like watching like my stepdaughters in these like teenage years what what I think is so fascinating is you get this like reflection you you get this like bizarre you see you start to see like a yourself in them like all you start to see like Mm -hmm. their mannerisms their young adulthood Mm -hmm. them kind of like figuring their way and you just get these like flashes of your own childhood and like this like in your own young adulthood and just like this whole other perspective and like of forgiveness for this younger version of yourself that I feel like in your in my 20s I just judged her so much like I Mm -hmm. judged my teenage version of myself I judged my early 20s and then now kind of watching like these young women in this younger generation I just have like such I have so much more forgiveness for my younger self that's that's really amazing I've I've often thought like in having a boy that in some ways I feel like I was let off the hook of like not like I didn't I don't need to sort of confront those younger versions of myself and like do probably the work that's inherent in that for you that I that it's of course there are new challenges with raising a boy but it it just feels so potent like to 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 raise a girl and revisit that younger self wow it's it's definitely it's a journey. It's yeah. <laughs> it's definitely it's been fascinating, which has also led me to even like picking up like buying your book and just even like the all the words within the title like want me and really like your own relationship with like sex and and just really desire. And it's so funny. I've talked about it on this podcast that I had started. I'm 36. You know, I've had two kids. I have really had to 
reevaluate my relationship with myself and with my body and like where I place my self-worth. And I've been sep- I've been separated for a while now and and so I've had like more free time when my children go over to their dad's house. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I had picked up is kind of like a hobby because that's what everyone tells you like when you get divorced they're like make sure you have a hobby to keep you sane. And one of my hobbies I picked up was dancing like a hip hop dance class. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> to, get in, to get back into something that I remember being fun and that I missed doing and that made me feel confident when I was younger. And then now in adulthood is like completely scared me. And I realized that there was an element of that, of like wanting to do this like ridiculous hip hop class that made me want to feel like I was taking charge of like feeling sexy again, that like, you know, that, that I'd focused so much on like this visual of like how it would look externally, even though I like I was still focused on like what how would I be seen how would I be desired how would the physical movement of my body be seen like from a public eye of like being sexy as opposed to what I should have been doing and what I ended up doing which is actually getting back in touch with myself and what feels good and what makes me feel confident and it has nothing to do with anyone else and how they see me but how I feel within myself and your book is so much rooted in that, this ridiculous kind of like our relationship with being desired versus like what we actually desire. And you talk about a lot about your your uh, relationship to sex in in like your discovery of like your body and sexuality as like a young kid. Could you maybe share with us a little bit on why you wanted to kind of start with your teenage years in a book about desire and sex and being wanted? Yeah, absolutely. And I also really relate to the hip hop dance aspirations. That's actually an aspiration I've never realized. I've actually always held that as this, you know, if I could do that and, and, and really like let, there's something about dance that requires a letting go and like allowing yourself to be foolish and not cool potentially. So that really resonates with me, like as a high aspiration, the ability to like really be in your body in that way and be loose with it and not be stuck in that outside perspective watching yourself. But maybe one day I'll get there. So kudos to you that you're taking the dance class. But I started with my younger years because that's where so much of the indoctrination happens. And so, you know, when I grew up in Berkeley, California, I was raised by a couple of Berkeley hippies. You know, it was ostensibly a very sex positive household where they really spoke about sex in glowing terms. It was talked about as this almost like spiritual level event. My parent, my dad especially was very outspoken with feminist beliefs. And he would tell me things like, you know, what matters is a woman's brain, not her looks. A woman's most attractive feature is her brain. You can be anything you want to be, that kind of messaging. And then at the same time, I was like glued to the TV and watching MTV around the clock, like spring break specials and late night. (laughs) Yeah. Girls gone wild infomercials and like staying up late to watch late night HBO and see strip clubs on TV. And like, it felt like I was getting one message at home from my hippie sex positive parents. And then this other message from the culture at large that was like very much this like, you know, sexualized frat party, it felt like. I kind of held out hope that 
there were men out there like my dad who seemed to think that like, you know, what made a woman attractive was her brain and that the frat party of pop culture was not all there was. And that I might be able to, as a, you know, heterosexual woman, find a partner who appreciated me for all that I was. A sort of inciting incident of my book is finding my dad's porn or his browser history where he had subscribed to perfect10.com. And so this idea of like (laughs) my dad who told me that what matters is my brain is like subscribing to a website and a magazine that is rating women on a one to 10 scale. It was like, you know... Mind blowing and very disillusioning because it felt like if even my feminist father, who I knew was unusual, but if even he is this way, then what does that mean for the rest of men? And what does that mean for me as a young woman growing up in this world and trying to find a partner? So, really, that was part of what set me off on this journey to kind of ostensibly understand straight men's desire in this hope to kind of master it to maybe, you know, become it or at least understand it because that really felt like power to me. But it was like along the way of that journey that I was able to get more in touch with my own desires. So starting in the teenage years felt so fundamental because that was where like all of that, the conflict and the contradictory messages began. I always wonder like for our moms, they they have like their own version of like their generation of feminism, you know, and it was kind of my interpretation from my relationship with my mother and our conversation was this idea that like feminism rooted in like women getting into the workplace like that. It was all rooted in that, like mm. women in workplace. You know, you talk about it so perfectly. We're also the first generation that really, you know, became saturated with porn online. You know, we are the dial-up generation who suddenly this was not just Playboy magazines found, you know, dusty behind, you know, in old drawers. This this has opened up a whole new world of, of Google and seeing things immediately and whatever you want. And kind and all of the porn was geared in, you know, for so long towards the male gaze And it is not that surprising that like our generation kind of came up wondering like, what, what do men want? What is the role that we have to be while also claiming some sort of like feminism, like that's rooted in like the one night stand almost like, I don't know if you can put all those pieces together. You did it much better in your book than what I'm doing now. To me, it's that we're this generation that has grown up with the lie of liberation, that we've grown up believing that the sexual revolution was fought and won, and that, you know, freedom is ours for the taking. And that's a lie. And it's also this very neoliberal notion of empowerment that's all about the individual, that, you know, as as an individual that you can make the right set of choices and become empowered, as opposed to like the initial original definition of empowerment, feminist definition of empowerment was about collective struggle for collective gain. It was about improving everyone's situation. It was about, you know, overcoming those systemic hurdles together. It was not about savvily navigating the world on your own. And so we've moved very much towards this more commercialized vision of feminism that is much more about performing empowerment. And so uh, I think that's extremely confusing. And I found that 
impossible to parse as I was going through it. And it was really only once I felt like I had a safe distance from it that I could look back and understand that so much of what I was doing was trying to perform the part of this, you know, sexually liberated woman, when the reality was that there were still so many constraints in the world, you know, that I was like, (laughs) you know, not sort of, you know, unencumbered and awash with pleasure, that I was faking all of my orgasms with all of my partners when I was hooking up. And that, you know, in that moment in my 20s, it felt like, it felt like enough that I was like, like I, yes, I can go out there and have sex like a man and I can have one night stands, you know, and survive it almost, you know, and sort of perform this vision of this like sexually empowered woman who's like multi-orgasmic and like all of these things when that wasn't the truth. It was, it was, it was a performance. It was a fantasy. 
think about sex. I mean, I remember every single main movie that I watched in high school was all about the whole point of like senior year leading up to prom and the whole thing that you have to do before you go off into college years is lose your virginity. You know, it's like (laughs) the, the fact that this was like a very typical plot point of almost every single teen movie yeah. at, at like at that time of like the late 90s, early odds. I mean, even the 80s, that was like a whole part of it. And none of it is rooted in pleasure, in mm-hmm. intimacy, in consent, in a conversation with yourself of like what you des- actually desire. When you were young and you started having sex with her, you write about it in your book, but what was your idea of sex at that time? Mm. I mean, my idea of sex came from a multitude of influences. It was early internet porn. It was those late night HBO TV shows, you know, which mostly involved women, you know, women dancing for men, that kind of thing. It was very much for catering to the male gaze. It was MTV spring break specials and, you know, girls competing in wet t-shirt contests during spring break. Like all of that stuff, even the stuff that was not sex itself communicated something to me about what sex was about, right? Like it was, it communicated what the power dynamic, the essential power dynamic of sex was, which to me was women catering to men's desires and performing for men. And so I went into sex with not just those like abstract ideas about sex, but also like very concrete visual, visual ideas about what sex looked like, which is so different from when I think about like my mom's generation when she first had sex, she'd, she'd never seen it before. And I'd seen it countless times and like very yeah. explicit examples of yeah. it. And, and to me, that's a, you know, that's a really interesting generational change to be able to go into sex and not be discovering it for the first time to go into sex and to feel like you're part of like the act of sex is part of the culture because like, pornography is part of our culture. It's one of our most, you know, the most popular forms of mass media that there is. You know, to me, sex felt like participating in the culture in the same way that like, you know, a wet t-shirt contest felt like participating in the culture. Like it was part of the conversation about, about sex and about, you know, gender differences and power. And I certainly went into it with a very strong idea of what it was. And it took a very, very long time to get to a place where I could really explore my own ideas of what sex was and what it could be and what I wanted from it. What's interesting is I feel like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that didn't necessarily even come from writing about sex. Mm-hmm. Like you, you started writing, how old were you when you started writing about sex? You were in college, essentially? Yeah, I mean, as, I mean even as far back as high school, I was always, always drawn to the topic. But definitely during college for the school newspaper, I was writing about porn and sex. And yeah, so from, you know, very early 20s or late teens. Yeah. Why, why sex? I mean, I have a very long answer for that. <laughs> did you pitch it or did were they like you? We're no. gonna we want you to write about it. <laughs> it's always been the thing that I've been drawn to. And so, and it's a very funny thing because I'm, you know, a, a fairly shy and reserved person. And so for me to be like to go out and and demand or ask for something is remarkable. And 
it's always been the thing that I've pushed towards. So that was true in college, writing for the newspaper was true when I got my first internship at an online magazine. Like it was always the topic that I was drawn to. And, you know, I see that as partly a result of growing up in the, you know, hippie sex positive household in Berkeley that I grew up in and feeling like a sense of permission to write about sex and to not feel like my family was going to disown me. But it also, I think, arose from the kind of contradictions that I detected early on where I was seeing like my family is telling me one thing, the culture te- is telling me this other thing, like what what is the truth and wanting to like really dial into that. But more recently, I've realized that there's this even deeper level to it, I think, which is that, and I mentioned this only very briefly in Want Me, but I'm actually now working on a second book that's about this. But my mom, when she was 18 years old, got pregnant and was sent away to a home for unwed mothers. It was 1965. This was what they did back then. Young women were sent away, hidden away. The proof of their illicit sexuality was hidden behind closed doors. And then they were coerced, essentially, towards adoption. And I've come to realize, because I recently actually found my sister, (laughs) who my mom plays for adoption, through a DNA test. And wow. that, yeah, and because they burned so many of those records back then, they did, they did, and it was like impossible to reconnect mm. and to, and the adoptions were closed. And so, for me, it was as easy as spitting in a vial and dropping it in the mailbox. And I found my sister, and so this has been this amazing experience that's unfolded for me over the last year and a half now. And part of that experience has been doing some research around what happened to our mom um, and being sent away. And I've had this sort of cascade of realizations around the fact that my mom was sent away in shame in response to her sexuality. And she was told to hide it from her friends and family and community, to pretend it had never happened, to never talk about it again. And it destroyed her in so many ways. And I realized that like, I've organized my life around writing and speaking publicly about sex and sort of pursuing this, you know, aim of shamelessness that I've like arranged my life around it in this really kind of dramatic way. And I think I used to think that that was like an ironic, like there was some poetic irony to that or that it was a coincidence. And now I realize that it was not a coincidence, that it is very much was in response to what happened to my mom. And so now I see that as like, I've been so driven to write about this topic because it feels like, like writing honestly about sex, speaking the truth about sex feels like survival to me. It feels like I know what happened to my mom from being silent. And it feels like I've been doing, trying to do the exact opposite and put it all out there. (laughs) You could feel the weight of the shame that your mom carried because of, which was the shame placed on her. Yes, exactly. I saw, I saw the, the shame and the pain and the like enduring trauma from this like social institutional response to premarital sex you know, and then like, lo and behold, like I go out there as a 20 something. And like one of my big splashiest personal essays that I wrote at the beginning of my career was an essay that was titled in defense of casual sex. And it's like, you know, 
I am my mother's daughter. Like I am in some ways, you know, it feels like a continuation of that story in a very powerful way. I'm so glad that you referenced. I I am obsessed with this topic and I love Anne Fessler's book so yes. much, The Girls Who Went Away. Yes. And the second I saw that you referenced it, I was like, because <gasps> I just feel like the yeah. fact that no one really talks about this chapter of history that affected mm-hmm. so many families, especially given what's going on in the state of the country right now with so many states who are attacking health, women's health care. All that to say, I, all I'm thinking about as you're talking about this as well, is in the moment that you email your mom, kind of wondering if you're weird, you know, uh-huh. in talking about <laughs> sex. <laughs> Correct me, is this, you, you'd been dating someone at the time? Like, can you, can you share a little bit? Because mm-hmm. especially given that like your mom's ability to, to basically be faced with you kind of wrestling, like whether you should feel ashamed or not mm-hmm. because of the way you were discovering sex and in, in your relationship with like what sex means to you and for your mother in that moment to just say, you're not weird. Like yeah. to, to just have that, be able to remove that, take yeah. that weight away from you. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was like 24 and I had been in a long distance relationship with a wonderful guy. And, but I felt that there was something essentially missing in the relationship. And he was on paper, like all of the things that I wanted, but he wasn't able to communicate about sex from a distance. And I wasn't able, I, it it didn't feel right to me to be in a relationship and not have sex be part of our relationship, even though we were physically apart. And I kept sort of questioning that sense of dissatisfaction and, you know, felt like, well, look on paper, it's all the things that you want. Right. Unfortunately, I did end up cheating on him and I, you know, was very ashamed and the relationship ended up, you know, falling apart, not too surprisingly in that sort of moment of grief immediately after I emailed my mom. And I, you know, I, I said like, basically she had no idea that these were all these things that I felt lacking in the relationship. And, you know, was I wrong for having wanted more? And, you know, was I a weirdo for feeling more desire, more sexual connection, more More. uh, able to explore different boundaries within your sex life together as a partnership? Yes. Yes. And yeah, am I a weirdo? She'd written back this very long, thoughtful email. And, and, you know, one of the things that she said in it was somewhere in you is the answer for what is right for you. Because I'd kind of been casting about of like, oh no, you know, and I was using very much the rhetoric of the time, which at that time in the 2000s, there was like all this language around, you know, young women, like, not settling down and ending up sad and alone. And like, and, and those messages had really gotten to me. And so I was like, am I going to end up a lonely cat lady? Like, you know, it was just like so overwrought and fearful. And, you know, she was very solid and comforting of like, you know, what is right for you and really affirmed that I did need something more. And then she'd sent that email. And then like moments later, she wrote a PS and it was, you are not a weirdo. (laughs) And, and, you know, I think that really came from a place, I know that came from a place for her of feeling like a weirdo, for feeling abnormal as a woman for having desire, which of course was partly instilled in her from her experience of being sent away, but is also shared by so many of us. And it was a really 
beautiful thing to to be able to have that kind of conversation, honestly, with my mom and to hear you are not a weirdo. It's so funny because I think about like, you know, even just this, this idea basically of if you're this like single young woman, especially in your 20s to, you know, desire to, to desire sex and be sexual and, and be curious. And then, and then also sometimes like, did you ever find a, a time or position? I think, and I, I have a feeling, yes, just based off of reading your book, but just to share where like you at the start of a relationship were this very sex, sex forward, sex positive person. And then once you're in the relationship, you know, all of a sudden maybe being shamed for that within. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? This like yeah. constant pressure, I think, on so many women, especially young women in their 20s who might be, you know, met with an, an insecure partner and an insecure, you know, not to generalize men, but j- just someone, if you end up partnered with someone who might be insecure at that time, especially when everyone's young and everyone's figuring it out, but how quickly it can be turned against the woman, like the Madonna and the whore thing, you know, it's oh, like, yeah. you're, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. And, and it, yes. it can be so confusing. And especially when you don't even like have a relationship with yourself to know what you want yet, because society has told you like the whole object of the game is to be desired mm-hmm. and to be chosen <laughs> and to get the final rose, you know, yeah, per yes, se. yes, yes. Yeah. When I remember in my twenties, like when I was like, you know, officially minted as a sex writer, I remember thinking that it was so funny that like men were not interested in talking to me about being a sex writer. Like they didn't want to hear about it or know about it. Like they weren't impressed by it. Like to generalize, of course, there were some exceptions, like people I actually got into relationships with who are wonderful. But like, I remember thinking how interesting it was that like, you know, it feels so often like we're pushed towards like, you know, being sexy and open and free. But then actually it felt like, you know, (laughs) men weren't interested in that part of it. Like that, that was like, it was intimidating or scary. And I think that speaks to the mixed messages that we get. Like the one, there are these wonderful feminist researchers who've really mapped out how the traditional virgin slut dichotomy has endured over the decades, but it's also morphed. So it's become this like minefield essentially, where it used to be a tightrope, but now it's more of a minefield where it's not just virgin slut. It's also don't be a prude. There are these pressures towards being sexy, but not too sexy, but no one knows what's too sexy. So it's just like, you're never actually safe. You know, every sort of step is potentially perilous, like as a young woman trying to navigate just the right balance of things there. And then alongside of that, there are all these pressures towards performing empowerment, like we're talking about, like of playing the part of the sexually liberated woman, which researchers have found actually has turned into this way of defending yourself against like perceptions of being a slut. So like you can have sex, but if you're real empowered about it, you're not a slut. But if you're being taken advantage of, or if you're somehow not empowered about it, then, then that's what a slut. So the, the definition of what it means to be a slut has morphed and changed in all of these ways that puts all the more pressure on seeming empowered and, you know, in charge which is like what but again 
what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> like according yeah. to someone else, which yeah. really just brings it all back to like, if we could all take a moment to really start with ourselves and mm-hmm. get to know ourselves before we have an idea of like who we should be for anyone else. And that I think is what I hope for this younger generation of women to like really be able to get in touch with their like what they want and how they see themselves before they suddenly bring anyone else's perspective or desire into it. When was your big shift? Like when did you go from being this like very free sex positive, you know, sex journalist who was faking her orgasms to all of a sudden saying, no, I I don't want to do this anymore. I want to be more connected with myself. And when did you kind of get back home to the root of who you were to start learning about your personal desire and how to build a relationship with that? I feel like it kind of coincided with a lot of different things. My mom was diagnosed with terminal cancer and I went through, I must've been 26 at the time, I want to say. And I went through obviously a really difficult, challenging time where I actually, you know, turned to sex as a way of sort of experiencing pain of like manifesting this like all consuming pain and preemptive grief that I was experiencing physically as physical pain. And so it, it, you know, looking back feels like it was a pretty destructive period in my life. And I think, you know, there was part of that where I, I moved through that and went to a very dark place and eventually emerged on the other side, feeling like, I was no longer interested in self-annihilation. And, you know, I had gone to this very dramatic place, but it actually felt like it was a continuation of like so much of what I'd kind of been doing to myself and what our culture does to us as women in, in my, you know, performing for men's desire, in my silencing my own, you know, authentic desire and, and, and not experiencing pleasure. And so I just, at the other side of that, I felt so done with that. And I started craving intimacy and pleasure. And I ended up getting into a relationship where I felt very safe with like a wonderful and kind man. I had started our relationship faking orgasms and very much performing pleasure, but it felt like a safe place for me to start exploring the idea of like, what if I stopped performing? And so that was really the start of beginning to tune into what I wanted, what felt good in my own body. And, and even just like asking for this space to explore that with someone else. So that was the start. And, and it was, you know, it was a journey from then on, you know, going forward into my relationship with my husband, who was a man who was very unlike any of what I'd sort of grown up expecting from men. Like, for example, he wanted to wait to have sex. Like he actually, like he was the one that felt the need to kind of establish more intimacy before we got physical. And that was that, you know, it challenged all of my ideas about how things were supposed to go. I think those challenging moments, those moments that kind of debunk your ideas about sex helped to helped me to move along in in my journey towards myself, because I realized in a lot of ways, like i been performing this idea of what men wanted, but it wasn't necessarily what men wanted. And that was also part of what I discovered in my work as a sex writer, especially reporting on the porn industry. Like one of the big moments in the book is like, I'm on a porn set and I'm 
chatting behind the scenes with this performer who I grew up watching, who helped form, helped to form my idea of what sex was. And he was backstage going, you know, oh, I don't like to have sex like this in my real life. Like girls these days think that like, you know, this is what sex is. It's not what sex is. Like, and it, it was so <laughs> illuminating to me. You were to, like, what? It's like finding what? out Santa Claus isn't real. Exactly. You're like, what? It, exactly. It reminded me of this experience I'd had as a little kid when I'd seen I'd, there'd been some kind of like wardrobe malfunction with Minnie Mouse. And I realized that like, oh my God, there's a person inside that costume. You know, it was like, <laughs> yes. ah. And so similarly, it was like, and by that point, I knew it's like rationally, I knew that porn was fantasy. I'd reported on it for years, but there was still this like little, you know, adolescent version of myself inside of me that still held on to it as some essential truth. And so that was like a really powerful moment. And I, and I kept having moments like smaller moments like that throughout my career as a reporter, talking to men, talking to women, talking about sex, having these honest conversations, hearing people's most private thoughts and realizing that there was so much to this experience, so much nuance, so much individuality that like the, the ideas that we hold about sex, what it should be, what's hot, what men want, what women want are so false. And it's such a waste of time trying to perform this idea, this fantasy. So that was an essential piece of it too, was like the kind of education that I got from my career. It was like the kind of sex education that we all should get as young people, but I had to get it through, you know, 15 years reporting on sex, like, <laughs> unfortunately. But when you realize how false these sort of aspirations are, like, it makes it so much easier to let go of it. And to try to start with a blank slate and, and, and create it yourself. Like, what is sex? What is desire? What do I want? I'd love to hear your thoughts on how your perspective, especially as someone who who broke her your career broke over a an article about casual sex and now you're you're married has have been married for 7 years 8 years We're coming up on 10. Oh, 10 years. Jeez, I was way <laughs> yeah. off on whatever Instagram photo I saw was way off. So coming up on 10 years, which I'm sure, you know, you've had a completely you know, different relationship with your understanding of sex, even within the realm of, you know, mm -hmm. monogamy, partnership, and also within having a child together as well. What is, you know, what's probably been the biggest shift in the way that you see sex and intimacy uh, as in marriage with, or within mm. a monogamous long-term relationship? To me, it's really about adapting to all of the shifts in your relationship. I mean, especially like if I think about from when we first got together, you know, all of those sort of life events that happen along the way from the beginning of our relationship. My mom died two months before we got together. Like these big moments of like grief or, you know, then having a baby, like which completely consumes your life and sex, you know, disappears for a little while, you know, or even like, rediscovering sex as a pregnant person like what like I didn't know how to do that I didn't know what that looked like you know so it's like really been adapting to it in different phases like there are different sort of passing fantasies or interests and so it's really like to me the most important thing has been being able to talk about those shifts and changes including the fact that parenthood often feels so consuming and it's so exhausting 
that sometimes it doesn't feel like there's a lot of space for sex. And sometimes sex actually comes to feel like a burden or a task, you know, and like even to be able to talk about that and even to be able to schedule it, you know, like to, to make the space for it and to not have unrealistic expectations of like, we're just going to be overcome with desire in the midst of this domestic (laughs) scene of childcare. Like, that's not going to happen. Like, it's not very sexy. You know, it's not very sexy. Like the sort of, in my experience, marriage can be very transactional. It's like, okay, can you take the kid? Okay, now I'll take the kid. Can, you know, so I can get some time on my own. And like this constant navigation and negotiation and, you know, it doesn't really set the stage very well. So like, it's been a new phase of like letting go of those expectations of what it should be. You know, I would say like the lessons that I learned through that journey throughout my twenties have proven to be very useful now too. And just the like letting go of the narrative of what it should be and allowing yourselves to like co-create something together. What would Tracy in her early twenties writing writing your piece about casual sex, what would that Tracy, how would she define intimacy? Ooh, (laughs) that Tracy was not very comfortable with intimacy (laughs) at all. Yeah. I mean, how would she have defined intimacy? Um, I think that younger version of myself longed for emotional intimacy. I think I didn't know so much what sexual intimacy looked like. And it's interesting to have, I think I felt so comfortable with getting really deep into emotions with a partner and feeling so vulnerable in that way. But I didn't know, I had no sort of experience or context for like the kind of vulnerability, physical vulnerability of sex and emotional vulnerability of sex. Like I, I, I just wasn't familiar with it. And so I think probably I would have really defined intimacy as like the, the the emotional piece of it, but I didn't have a vision for what the physical side of it really would look like. Yeah. She, I mean, that, that's been, that was one of the main things I think in my journey throughout my twenties was like this sort of beginning to long for intimacy in sex. Like it actually hadn't been something that I'd been in pursuit of at all. Um, sex had felt much more like something that was like performance and play, which it can be, but it doesn't have to only be that. How do you define intimacy, relational intimacy, sexual intimacy today? It looks to me, it feels so essential to be able to be honest about my desires, to not have to feel like there's any part of myself that I have to hide. And to kind of like establish that, we've established that in our relationship that we can talk about our desires openly and candidly and laugh about them. Like that it's, we've, we've set that sort of standard and expectation. And to me, I think there's, there's something so intimate and important about being able to be, to reveal that full self to my partner and be accepted, especially as a woman having, having received so many messages around being a weirdo, like we were talking about, you know, like for wanting sex at all. And so 
to me, there is a profound intimacy in being able to talk about those things candidly and openly and to feel like there's nothing that's off limits. So it's that sharing, that uncensored sharing that most core to me. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. For, for anyone who's been in a long-term relationship, in a monogamous relationship for a very long time, especially couples with children, it becomes the conversation of keeping the spark alive or trying to make mm. time to like, just, you know, like the quantity of sex somehow equals the quality of the relationship. Mm. And I don't know when we decided that that's like what intimacy is as a society. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That the act of it actually (laughs) means that like you're actually connected. And so I think that that's so beautiful what you just said, because some couples I know who like, you know, just women I know who talk about it, you know, that their ability to share with their partner, you know, just be the, their full selves and like, mm-hmm. and just be vulnerable is, is like a, such a deeper form of intimacy for their relationship than the actual act. Well, and like that whole thing of like, how often are you having sex and like can feel so much like that performative stuff that we were talking about mm-hmm. where it's like, it's, it's not about like the actual like authentic experience of it. It's about some idea of it. It's about like keeping up with some idea of, of how it's supposed to be. It's, and it's like, that's like the worst 
measure possible is like how often you're having sex, you know? I mean, yes, it can feel very important. And like those, you know, desire discrepancies in relationships or, you know, that's a very serious issue for a lot of folks. And like, so it's not to discount that, but it's like, it's so not the most essential and important thing. (laughs) For anyone that is listening who maybe hasn't taken a moment to kind of reconnect with their own self or who has found themselves kind of what you were describing, like in a place where they had been maybe faking their orgasms and and not really like in tune of their desire, what they want, or even how to communicate what they want. As a sex journalist, what have you discovered over the years is maybe a place that someone can start to even like how someone can start engaging with discovering what they want and how they could go about sharing that with the partner eventually. Yeah. The most basic thing, the, mo- the most, I think, important place to start, I think immediately of, there's a sex researcher, Lori Brado, who, I, I hope I'm getting this right, but she's done these group exercises where she has women essentially engage in mindfulness. And it's maybe sounds silly, but like, they're literally taking a raisin and they're like holding the raisin up and looking at the raisin and like observing what the raisin looks like, like noting, you know, like all of the texture and how it feels between their fingers. And then they like slowly progress to like smelling and then tasting and like feeling like, what does it feel like on the tongue? What is like the flavor? Like, and it's like this exercise of noticing and experiencing and being present. And it's not sexual. It's just a raisin. And, <laughs> and everyone's like, what do you do I mean, with the raisin? Sexual. It, it like, could be sexual. Where are we going with it? <laughs> do whatever you want with the raisin. But but it's like to, to it's the tuning in, you know? And I think they've actually done research around it. And it's really profoundly helpful, these kind of mindful exercises to get people into their bodies. Mm-hmm. Because when you get outside of your body and you're like this idea of like, I need to have an orgasm and, you know, am I, how do I look from this angle? And like all of that, where you're like this like third person in the room watching yourself having sex as, a, as opposed to just being in your body and allowing whatever happens to happen, like whatever sensations arise or don't arise, like to like have, let that happen without judgment. So related to that, to me, the other essential piece is this idea of like sex without a goal. And that can be sex on your own. It can be sex with a partner, but just this idea of tuning into sensations and without expectation, like, what does this feel like? What, you know, what am I, what am I thinking about in my brain? Like just being present with whatever is going on in your body, in your mind, just allowing yourself to follow that without this sort of finish line in mind. And that was how I, you know, quote unquote, unlocked my orgasm in my twenties was like when I was with that partner who I'd initially started by faking with him. And then I decided, you know, I, I actually didn't, unfortunately, looking back, like I didn't communicate to him, like. I've been faking my orgasms. I want to stop faking my orgasms, which is actually what I would recommend. But instead, what I did was I tried to engineer all these different exercises that we did together. We're like, oh, I want to delay orgasm. And like, you know, 
I feel like there's a word. Wasn't there like a trend of like, like uh, I don't know, never. But like there, there was words. There was like the words for it for a while. Yes. Right. Yes. Like edging or something. Oh, yes. There's. Yes. So I basically like, like pretended like that's what I was doing. When in reality, I was like trying to have an authentic orgasm for a change. What really worked for me was actually Dan Savage, the sex advice columnist, had asked me to help a letter writer to answer a letter writer's question. And it was a young woman who was struggling with orgasms, much like myself. And so I gave her advice based on what I'd learned in my job speaking with sex researchers. And it was essentially this like taking away the finish line. And it was so funny that in giving this other young woman this advice, I was able to actually take it myself. And so I literally, that advice column published and then I had my first authentic orgasm with my partner at the time. <laughs> so it was like, it really was like, that was the thing that unlocked it for me was, oh, like, I, I don't have to be working towards this thing. I can actually just be present in this experience and see what happens. And sometimes you surprise yourself. And, and when you take away the finish line, that's exactly when you reach it. <laughs> well, I'm so grateful to have found your book. You know, we're, we're, at, we're the same age. I grew up watching all the same things you did. <laughs> I grew up with, so, there were so many things that it just helped me have a much better understanding of how, you know, that specific, growing up during that specific time period has kind of, you know, put this, uh, like how it kind of curated an idea of sex and sexuality within my own life and, and kind of put the, like cast a a very clear idea of it, you know, cast a shadow of what I thought it was supposed to look like instead of just mm -hmm. really, really understanding it for myself. And thank you for hanging out with us today. And I want to, I could talk to you for hours. So that's why I'm like, I don't even have a smooth way to end this because I still have like a million <laughs> other questions I would ask you and talk to you about. But I do end each one of these with asking my guests five little easy questions, just as a little conversation cool down. And so just the first kind of things that come to your head, word or sentence, but Tracy, what is something that you like? Mm, water, the ocean. I thought I, for a second, I was like, are you just super hydrated all the time? You just drink a lot of water. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not one of those people. No, I like, I love being in bodies of water. Yeah. Something that you know. Something that I know. Nothing, apparently. I love my son. I just, my, my eyes immediately went to his sweet little face in the in a framed photo on my desk. So I know that. Something that you hate. <sighs> Dishonesty, lies, secrecy. Something that you love that is not family, friends. Something that you love. Reading. And then a quirky little fact about you. When I was 13 years old, I ran a daily Leonardo DiCaprio newsletter. <laughs> with over a thousand subscribers where young women from all over the world would send me clippings from like Australian magazines of like Leo photos or Leo news. And I'd collect it all in my newsletter and send it out every single day. I love it. What do you think of modern day Leo? Mm. <laughs> Is that for a different podcast episode? Not, not a fan. Okay. <laughs> Is that going to be your third book? <laughs> Yes, exactly. Yeah, no, it's like 1997 Leo for me. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get that. I get that. <laughs> well, Tracy, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been a Super Boom podcast hosted by me, Candace King. 
produced by Melissa D. Mons and Diamond Imprint Productions and advertisement partnerships with ACAST. 